welcome to Design Conscious, a podcast exploring diversity and leadership in environmental sustainability in the built environment. My name is Sarah Lawler. I am a Sydney-based architect, and through this series, I speak to sustainability leaders working across a variety of different organisations related to the built environment, including design, construction, research and investment, with an aim to learn about the impact of sustainability leadership. This podcast is supported by the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship awarded by NARWIC, the National Association of Women in Construction, which has facilitated this research into gender equity and diversity in sustainability leadership. Today I'm speaking with Anne Austin, National Sustainability Manager for Lend-Lease Building Australia and Head of Sustainability Engagement for Lend-Lease Group Globally. Anne has worked with the Lend-Lease Group since 1992 in a variety of project and people management roles. In 2004, Anne established Lend-Lease's first suite of sustainability metrics and has been responsible for establishing a culture at Lend-Lease that supports sustainability excellence. She convenes the Culture and Inclusion Working Party for the Australian Constructors Association and has degrees in architecture and an executive MBA. She balances all this as a mother of three delightful children while recording kids' music and regularly following the black line in a swimming pool. Anne joins me from Sydney for a conversation that spans themes of engagement, collaboration and the necessary discomfort of change. Hi Anne, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Ah, very pleased to be here. You have had a long career at Lend-Lease spanning over 20 years. I thought I would start our conversation today by asking you about your career journey so far and how you became involved in sustainability. I used to think I fell into it, uh, but on reflection, I think most of my early 20s was in preparation for a career in sustainability. So I'm an architect originally by training and uh, I've never practised as one. So I, I joined Land Lease on their graduate program and I had a very eclectic, well, I've had a very eclectic career up until the point of sustainability. Um, I started on site, I did project management, I globalised our foundation, etc. And I was Working uh, in our design house uh, as a sort of 2IC when a friend of mine um, was employed to set up our first sustainability area and I was just a bit fascinated and I didn't really know much about what he was doing but I reached out to him and said I'd like to work with you and as I began to work more with him and understand what sustainability was, I realised, one, that I'd covered quite a lot of it in my architecture degree, but two, that a particular leadership program that I participated in in my mid-twenties that was run by an organisation now called the Foundation for Young Australians was actually a training ground for my job. Uh, So this program took people between the ages of about 23 to 30 who were in... um, 
had the capacity for lead, showing the capacity for leadership in their field. So they were everything, doctors, dancers, business people, farmers, you know, from all over Australia. And we looked at issues facing Australia. And the first day was Australia's economic balance sheet. Australia's social balance sheet and Australia's environmental balance sheet. And so I was privileged to listen to the likes of Peter Garrett, uh, Tim Costello, Eva Cox, uh, five years in a row because I worked on the program. And when I look back on it now, I can't think of any better training <laughs> you can have for having your eyes opened to the, you know, the three core pillars of sustainability. So when I did fall into the role, I say with bunny ears, I realised actually I'd been quite well prepared for it. I hope I'm not giving away any secrets, but in corresponding over this interview, I've noticed that you have three quotes at the end of your email signature and two of them share a similar theme of speaking out on important issues, which starts to give an indication of the kind of sustainability leader you strive to be. The first is the thought from Martin Luther King, life begins to end the minute we become silent about the things that matter. And the second is a lesson from a favourite animal and quote from Rollo May, the turtle only makes progress when its neck is stuck out. You are the National Sustainability Manager at Lend-Lease, a position that comes with significant influence, opportunity and responsibility. What does it mean for you to be a sustainability leader? Uh, I really like those quotes because they remind me that uh, you need to have an element of bravery in a leadership role and you need to be prepared to ruffle feathers. And so leadership to me means you're actually going somewhere and going somewhere new and that's uncomfortable. That's really uncomfortable for people and you can be unpopular in that journey. And so... Uh, sometimes you just have to remind yourself that that's your job. Um, and I remember a um, marvellous quote from, I think it was from a priest at some point in my distant past, who said, uh, I think he was talking about, you know, great prophets come to disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And I really like that as a sentiment of what leadership is about, that, um, you know, when people need your help, you're there. And when people need to be disturbed and taken somewhere, you're there as well. Uh, so that's why I've chosen those quotes. And, uh, and and I think particularly in sustainability, if, if people are not um, perhaps a little stretched by where we're trying to take them, then we're not going far enough because we need to radically change this industry and it needs to feel uncomfortable and it needs to feel very different and it needs to hurt our brains because that's what's needed of us as a species so that, you know, we can prevail. And so I guess how are you starting to do that in your role? How are you using your influence to affect change? Uh, well, you mentioned at the start of the podcast that I've been in the company for a very long time. It's actually over 28 years. So uh, I've actually embarrassingly been working at Lendlease more than I haven't been <laughs> in my life. Wow. <laughs> I know. So, uh, so one of the things that that means, though, is your relationships are very strong. And I think any form of change journey is better done with people that know each other and respect each other and... Um, and can take the journey together as human beings. So, so p part of my um, 
uh, my influence. I've always been in roles of influence. I've never been in a role where I have positional power. So um, right from the very beginning, I've always had to um, understand people, be in their shoes, uh, figure out what they need. Um, one of the things I've learned pretty quickly when I fell into the to the role of sustainability, I felt vastly ill-equipped to do the job. And I really wanted to learn and to educate myself. So one of the things that I'm always aware makes people far more able to be active in this space is if you can make them feel more confident. So I do spend a fair bit of time around education and uh, upskilling people so that they do feel very confident. So for our recent round of um, work that we've been doing to set new targets for Lendlease, we have actually spent a significant amount of time with our global leadership team first educating them, particularly around karma, because it's a very complex topic. And that radically changed the type of conversation that we had with them and uh, and their, and their um, willingness and, and passion for setting targets that were bold. If we hadn't have helped them understand the material and the challenges, it, it would have been a totally different discussion. I'd like to talk now about your experience in relation to female representation and diversity in leadership. Have there been challenges or opportunities in your career that you have felt to be particularly significant in your leadership journey? Uh, well, I started work, so age me, I started work in 1992. Uh, were you born then, Sarah? Probably not. I was. I was. <laughs> Only just three, three-year-old. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, you've got to leave that in, by the way. Sorry. Uh, so, so when I started work, it was still the era where, you know, there were nudie posters on the walls and people going to topless bars. and so, You know, when I think about it now, it was quite horrific. Uh, I had a particularly good relationship with my foreman and um, we had a, a deal where he was, you know, respectful and Numbi, if you're out there, thank you for um, the beginning that you gave my career because it was far nicer than many had experienced. So I was very lucky. Um, the, the two gentlemen, my, my site manager and, and my foreman, were beautiful human beings, both of them, and... Um, so we were a great little team, and so I never, I never felt uh, aware of my agenda in a negative way at the beginning. And in fact, in my early career, I think it was helpful because I was one of very few women who had joined as a site engineer. And so when there was a conference, you know, they'd ask, "Oh, we better, we better, we better invite the girls," you know. So we, we did actually get a fair amount of exposure. And I do remember one hilarious time. I think I've been in the company for about two years and uh, we were going away on a conference that I was attending and I was invited to be the Sergeant of, Ar of Arms. Do you know what the Sergeant of Arms is? It's like, um, it's it's to try and make it a bit more fun. It's somebody who gets up at the start and end of each day and finds people in the room for being late or being annoying or wearing a bad <laughs> shirt or whatever, you know, and you, you bring a bit of humour to it and you raise money for a charity. And so that was my job and the gentleman who, who asked me to do that, he said, oh, you know, we thought it'd be good to get the girls involved. And I said, but you, I said to him, you know, but you're actually asking me, aren't you, because, because you think I'd be good at it, not just because I, I'm a girl. And he goes, no, no, I'm asking you because, you know, you're a woman. <laughs> so 
<laughs> in all innocence, right? He thought he thought he thought that that was great. And so then, so then my first fine was so fun. So I got up and um, let's let's call this gentleman Billy. That wasn't his name, but I'll call him Billy. And I, I said, okay, my first fine is is uh, for Billy. And I just want to. I remember saying, I'm not going to put a value on anybody's fine that they need to pay because who knows what your, you know, financial circumstances are. I said, except this one. And so I'm like, you know, Billy, can you stand up, please? And I said, $50. I'm fining you $50 for choosing me to be the sergeant of arms because I'm a woman. And then I'm charging you another $50 for being stupid enough to tell me, right? And the whole place was just in hysteria. And, and, and he was he was also a lovely man, and he he had never until that moment realised that what he had said was deeply offensive to me. Um, but I chose, and I have always chosen to uh, to see the humour in these things, and and to see to see the human in the thing as well, because he wasn't intending to be mean, but but he was. Um, so the only real challenges I think I faced were when I had children, and. Um, and working flexibly is a, is a, uh, was is is uh, always has been critical to me, but it became ever more so critical when I had my children. And pioneering that whole you know part time working, flexible working has been sort of my second um, crusade around so sustainability and flexible working are my things. Uh, and and that has been significantly challenging. And gratefully, I've been very very supported um, in my journey. But I. I'm aware that that's not the case for everybody, and so I'm really passionate about changing what it means uh, to work in this sector and and how flexible that can be. And I think that's one of the gifts of COVID is that you know we're realising that we can work in very many different ways. I like that you've taken on the challenges you've faced head on and with humour. That's great. From my research so far, it appears that women are well represented in the sustainability industry. However, there are some concerning themes that have emerged from my research about the perception of sustainability in the construction industry, and that is that it's perceived somehow as a soft discipline, which may be therefore affecting how it's valued and prioritised in the industry. I'm interested in what your experience of this is. Have you kind of felt that perception and how do you think that we could start to change that image? <laughs> anyway, calls it soft. It's clearly never worked in it. I'm, this is the hardest job ever. <laughs> um, I don't think I've seen it seen as soft but more as optional. And so this is, this is part of the change journey, isn't it? Um, so we're... We're shifting people's mindset to have sustainability at the core of the decisions they make as opposed to something that they bolt on or add on afterwards if someone pesters them enough. Uh, and and that's, the that's the transformation that we're making. So we, and we're in the middle of it. Um, so maybe some people don't have the vocabulary to describe that, so they call it soft. Um, but I think the other thing that I would say is yeah, it's really important to um, talk sustainability with hard facts, and that has really served us. Uh, so when when I actually show people 
what our footprint is uh, as a sector and as a business and the actual breakdown of how much and the figures, etc. and talk to people with, with facts, it makes a, a very big difference. So that education that I mentioned that we've done with our global leadership team was, was rooted in evidence and fact-based. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, emotive. We, we deliberately avoided trying to use um, sensationalism or adjectives. We, li we have just told the story because the, the truth is emotional all by itself because it's very confronting what, what we might be facing uh, as a species in our future. So I don't think you need to embellish it with um, dramatic adjectives or anything like that. So we've sort of taken that line of, well, well let's just... Um, present present the truth, and um, and if uh, things uh, flow from that, then then there's well I don't know maybe that's considered harder. <laughs> um, the the whole focus on females in the industry, I I personally think is really dangerous. I I think it's completely and totally irrelevant what gender people are who are leading this. We need everyone to lead this. And I don't care if you're male, female, or, or another gender uh, that you identify with. Um, your leadership is welcome and absolutely essential. And I think if we position this as, oh, women lead this, then there's a whole bunch of men who probably deeply care about sustainability and the future of the planet who are probably deeply confused by that and might feel alienated. And I, I, I don't support it. I don't think it's helpful. We are, as you mentioned, in a period of transition towards sustainability. Can I ask you to reflect on how you think the construction industry is tracking um, as a whole in terms of um, showing or demonstrating sustainability leadership? And where do you think as an industry we need to improve? Uh, I am always an impatient person, so I don't think we're doing anywhere near enough. Uh, and I think we've rested on the laurels of rating tools and convinced ourselves that, because you know, because a very small proportion of buildings relative to all the buildings that are built are getting really nice green star ratings or lead ratings or BREAM ratings, that um, that we're we're doing a good job. And and those tools are great, and they have shifted uh, a certain proportion of the industry, but. Um, it's nowhere near enough and much, much more has to happen. And when you think about the built sector, the commercial part of it that we all work in is, is a very small part of it, so the whole domestic scale and things. So I think we um, we should not be complacent and I I think we're, we're in the very beginning stages of our journey. We need to radically reform building materials. <laughs> radically uh, that to me is the biggest challenge because we can see we can see how we're going to change uh, scope one and two emissions from a carbon perspective so I, I am focusing heavily on on climate change from a sustainability perspective because I think that's the focus that we need at the moment because unless we unless we sort that uh, everything else is irrelevant um, uh, so um, and in that, I think that the the scope one and two, you know, electricity, et cetera, the, the grid will will green. We know how to do that. We just have to do it. Um, there are alternatives to gas. There are alternatives to diesel. So, so those answers are, are there. The commercial um, setup isn't quite right 
all the time yet for that. So that's the piece that needs to change, but that will change. But where the big gap for me is is uh, is in uh, the embodied carbon footprint of uh, building materials. And that's the huge opportunity. And we're, we're at Lendless, we're, we're really starting to focus in on that. And we recently uh, did some research with our supply chain around that, which we, we published alongside WWF, who had also done similar research with the supply chain and, and, and um, industry bodies and clients, et cetera. And as a result of that research, we're actually forming a, um, I don't know what we call ourselves, an alliance uh, of clients, designers, constructors, suppliers, all trying to work on that embodied carbon wicked problem. That's great. And, yeah, I think an alliance between all those parties is um, is so important rather than, you know, everyone has a part to play in that. Yeah. And I think if we can start to transform building materials, then that's going to have an effect too in the domestic market. So it'll be something that touches everybody. I mean, that's not to say there are a number of an enormous number of other issues. Affordable housing, a huge uh, social inequity, massive modern slavery. Um, there are countless numbers of them, and these are all challenges that we we need to to get on board with. And I think, to be honest with you, the property industries, you know, it, it's got its nappies on in this space. Focusing in on Lend-Lease's um, contribution to this space then, um, Lend-Lease are a leader at the, top, at, at the top end projects in particular, which helps inspire the rest of the market and shows people what's possible, which helps then bring up the rest of the market and, and kind of lift the overall standard. How do you continue to innovate in this area and to stay a leader in the field? Well, I think setting the bold targets that we have set ourselves. So we've we've set set ourselves the ambition to be a one and a half degree aligned company and so we've we're gonna be net zero carbon for scopes one and two by twenty twenty five and absolute zero by twenty forty. Now these at the moment these are the boldest carbon targets that exist in our sector globally. So that that's gonna you know neurologically <laughs> that switches you into a whole different space that says, oh I have to change. I can't. I can't incrementally improve. Uh, I can't um, achieve well by current standards and pat myself on the back. I need to do something different. So one one way that we continue to innovate is to is to continue to move that flag. And 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 look, I hope we get. You know, like it's our absolute intent to get there. We we may we may not totally get there but at least by having that flag all the way out there we're, we're progressing further and we, we learned that trick from interface carpets um, I don't know if you're familiar with Ray Anderson but he rest his soul is one of the pin-up stars of of the sustainability movement and you know back right back at the turn of the century he was setting targets uh, to, to climb as he called it Mount Sustainability for for zero he set the zero target he was zero waste and um, zero water, you, you know, use, et cetera. And, uh, and they got very, very close and as a result, you know, really sort of shifted things. So that's one way that we push innovation. But the other way that we, we will need to innovate is collaboratively. Um, the, the challenge of embodied carbon is not one that can be tackled by any one player in the value chain by themselves because it's a systemic issue. So the problems that we've got around embodied carbon, um, you can pinpoint a little bit of that problem at the, the beginning, at the, at the middle, <laughs> at the end of that whole journey of, 
you know, client sets brief and timetable and and then, you know, in, it has competitive tender process and then, then competitive tender contractors then also competitively tender their designers and their, and their suppliers, you know, it, it, the whole system is not well set up um, to support a, a shift, the sort of shift we need. So we need to come together, we need to collaborate and that's, that's going to be key to how we innovate around these things. Now, our social target to has also got a huge stretch element in it. So we're going to create 250 million of social value by 2025. So it's not looking at what we spend, but what the impact is of the uh, the shared value partnerships that we have uh, in the organisation. And that sort of figure means that we have to get like a one in five kind of return. So for every dollar that we invest with a shared value partner, that it creates around five dollars externally. Now that's a massive that's a massive stretch. We don't even know how to measure that effectively. That's not something that's been done before. So again, it's that whole well let's let's try and set set up a benchmark for where we, we know we need to go. We know we need to be constantly thinking about our social impact rather than just uh, giving, but like is the giving of value. Uh, and it would be really handy if we had a language around knowing that. So let's have a crack. Let's, let's see what we can do. Lendlease have set out three pillars of sustainability that guides their work, which are sustainable economic growth, vibrant and resilient communities and cities, and healthy planet and people. These pillars are more relevant than ever in this COVID context. And I guess, what do you see as the opportunities from a sustainability perspective coming out of COVID? Mm. So they're the imperatives of our sustainability framework. So we have a framework that helps us focus because sustainability, as you would know, is a huge topic. Uh, the SDGs, you know, there's, what, 17 or whatever of those, and uh, we just needed to be really clear as an organisation where is our impact greatest. Um, so that's, that, so we've got the three imperatives and they each have an environmental and social focus area that supports them. Out of COVID, uh, our greatest hope is the discussion that's very present at the moment around a green recovery actually happens. So... Most um, economies are in dire straits and need to think about stimulus. And there's an opportunity here for that stimulus to be something that sets us up for the long term, not just resolves the short term issues. So a lot of writers, investors, uh, politicians, etc., are talking about a green recovery. And uh, out of COVID, that's one thing that I would really, really hope for. Um, the other thing from a human sustainable perspective with my <laughs> flexible working hat on is I really hope that what we've learnt about how we can work, um, that, that we remember it and that we continue to be able to work from home, to travel less, uh, not all the time because I think we've all deeply missed community and connection with each other, um, but that we've learnt that, you know, there are other ways that are, that are possible for us to operate and to still be successful. So, you know, those those two things that are very different ends of the scale, I guess. And um, I think that opportunity of economic stimulus in COVID is such a great opportunity and I do agree. I hope we um, manage to utilise that. Yeah, yeah. 
I thought I would draw a parallel between um, that opportunity um, and the third quote in your email signature. <laughs> the Pullman one. Yeah, exactly. So Paul Pullman, Unilever CEO, who says, business cannot survive in a society that fails. So it is stupid to think that a business can just be standing on the sidelines of a system that gives them life in the first place. So seeking to be sustainable is not idealistic at all. Wonder if you could just reflect on that in this COVID context. Yeah, so Paul Polman's actually no longer the CEO of, of Unilever. He's now working full time in the sustainability space. But um, he he said that when he was, and uh, Unilever have you know set the, set themselves a very bold and impressive sustainability agenda. And I was just, well, I mean, what he said just makes sense, doesn't it? And I think that. I, I, it's it's like the boiling frog, you know, in the in the pot. That we're kind of crazy if we um, if we think that we can be successful in a planet that's dying. Like it, it just it's to me that's just kind of lunacy. Who was that group of people? Was it Easter Island where they they used to cut the trees down and and shape them into uh, huge sculptures of of some deity. And uh, and as a and and they 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 continued to do it to their own demise because they ended up with no trees and then no bird life and and then they all died like it was just this you know huge tragedy and you you sit sit back and you say oh my god couldn't they see what they were doing but I'm sure they were having conversations around but this is our tradition and this is what we need to do and you know this is how we've always done it the sorts of things that we say or I know I know we need to but right now we've got to do it here because of you know, there'll be reasons A, B or C. So I think Paul Polman's just holding up the mirror and going, it's not idealistic to say that we need to protect the planet. Like, hello, <laughs> we need to eat. We need resources. This is our home. Um, I, I, I do a bit of songwriting on the side and I had a very angry moment one time and I, ended, I wrote this song that was like, um, you know, I think that one of the lyrics was like, when you throw away, it doesn't go away. There is no away. We live here. Um, and, and it said, oh, this is it. This is all we got. Exactly. Um, I'm interested in how organisations can create structures or policies that support change within their own organisation. And as we've discussed, Lend-Lease has been at the forefront of this transition to sustainable practice. And I'm interested to hear your reflections on how organisations can demonstrate and empower leadership from within. Yeah, I saw that, that question and that's, that's a really interesting one. I'm not sure that you create change no I am sure that you don't create change just with structures and policies uh, that change is more complex than that and personally uh, my um, go-to for thinking about change management is um, a book called Influencer I can't remember the authors which is which is a bit tragic for them it's the same same people who, who do um, crucial conversations and what I like about the influencer model is, is that they talk about uh, an, a number of, of dimensions that we need to think about when we're trying to shift things. And um, there's that at a personal level, at a social level and at an organisational level and looking at it both from the skill and will, from the motivation 
uh, as well as as the ability. And and so it's both those things. A so part of it is, uh, as I was saying before, you know, having the skills, having the knowledge, etc. But look, um, an addicted smoker will tell you that knowledge alone doesn't change you. And uh, we know we know to shift things. It's it's way more complex than that. And some of the re- some of the research has shown that one of the things that shifted people most about not littering was when really cool, famous people said, don't be a dick, put your stuff in the bin, okay? It wasn't anything about piles of rubbish or look what's happening or anything like that. It was like, oh, cool person. And the cool person thing is actually really, really important in change in change management and so you know who you have as your spokesperson who you have as your pin-up child um you know i i am often quite in the background around the the campaigns in terms of i don't or i'm i'm very rarely the person on the poster or the person sending the email or whatever i i'm usually going you You're the one who needs to be the voice of this. Uh, you're the one who needs to be out in front and leading it because you're the cool person. You're you're the you're the one that's you know people go gosh if they if they're in I'm in, and so this model I think has a really, really interesting thing where it, it 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 says yes we need the structures that you talk about so we need the reward systems and um, uh, and the carrots and the sticks and we need the tools and the processes and the forms and and all that's really really important but if we don't have the cool people as well it'll fall over um so so in terms of structure you know initially in my role uh i spent a lot of time with my team embedding sustainability processes into our normal um project planning tools and project reviews. And and I think that's essential. You you have to be in the heart of all of your systems and structures, but you can't just rest on those laurels and think that that will do it. And and then the other other piece of advice that I always follow is from an old coach of mine, not not that he's old, I just haven't had him as my coach for a while, Um, Dr. Mark Strom, who, who really taught me that all change comes from conversation. And no, no amount of emails or fabulous self-help stuff will get you will get you the sort of change that conversation will. So that's actually quite challenging in the in the kind of COVID situation because a lot of our interactions are virtual and sometimes more personally targeted. Um, but I really think people need to talk to actually to actually shift. Continuing on on that theme of change management, how what do you think needs to change, or what do you think we can do to um, create better uptake of sustainable practices in a widespread way across the industry? What can we do across the whole industry? Um, collaborate. Uh, so I'm really excited by what we've started with. WWF and the New South Wales government uh, around embodied carbon uh, and clearly a lot of other people are as well because, you know, we had 350 people turn up online to uh, listen to research about, you know, 
barriers to the uptake of low and no embodied carbon materials. Like that to me was astounding. So there's obviously an appetite and an interest there. And all of us have recognised that we can't, we can't do this alone. So, um, so driving change in the industry, the more that we can share common goals and, uh, and set ourselves pathways together, I think that that's going to help us. I think we have to come out of our bubbles of competitiveness, much say as we, we try to do with safety. I think we just have to have a higher, a higher goal. I really think if we could have it, legislation actually does help enormously. Um, we can't wait for that, um, particularly in Australia, but uh, where there are changes to standards, uh, to building codes and standards, that does make a difference. Where there, If there was a price on carbon, oh, my God, that would be great um, because people would really have to wake up. So those legislative things do actually shift entire industries. I think if there were um, uh, government subsidies and incentives for innovation in the in the space financially, so much in the way that in the early stages, you know, the fossil fuel industry was supported and promoted. You know, how do we now shift that support to be in the industries that we need to grow, not the ones that we need to close down? So, all of those kind of mechanisms that are beyond my control would be really great. Um, if any of those people are listening who have that control, um, and I think to just keep talking about it. I think if we can continue to have not just people like me, but uh, people like your Paul Polmans, the, the people who are leading the organisations actually out there with each other talking about it. So Mike Cannon-Brooks is doing a great job of that at the moment with Atlassian, you know. So if you have got business leaders, now not that he's in our sector, but with that's, it's that sort of conversation amongst uh, the people who are held up as the commercially um, savvy uh, leaders of the space, then then we might start to, to see some shift. Thinking aspirationally now, and it doesn't have to be things within your control, um, but as a sustainability leader, you have the opportunity to help set the agenda for what we need to be focusing on in the development and construction industries. What are your main sustainability priorities for the next year and for the next five years? Well, for us at Lendless, it's pretty clear because we have mapped out um, pathways to achieve our, our social and environmental targets. Um, so in the next, in the next year, in, uh, for our social target, we're focused on working out how to measure social uh, value. So we're working with the Social Value Bank to help us try and work that out. Uh, so we'll be looking to establish a, a methodology. So that's so like in the first year, that's that's where we're focused, and then we start to measure, see what we learn. Maybe we need to change some of our programs, and then hopefully then we can adopt that measurement practices more broadly across the whole of our business. In the in the environmental space, our our focus in the next twelve months uh, initially is around bringing everybody in our organisation up to speed. So it's around education, engagement and involvement and mobilising and creating that sense of movement and that sense of shared leadership. Uh, so that's that's definitely part of it. But from a, a tactical perspective, we've you know we've set the scope one to scope one and two net zero twenty twenty five. So our first our first focus is on scope one and two emissions and 
trying to eliminate those. So we are focused at the moment on looking at alternatives to diesel. Um, in land lease building, our scope one emissions are predominantly from diesel. And uh, for, you know, earth moving equipment, cranes, uh, generators, etc. So we've been looking at a product called Renewable Diesel, which is entering the Australian market next year, looks absolutely fantastic, uh, which doesn't have the same emissions profile, has almost zero. Um, we're looking at longer term, we'll be looking at electrification, but in the short term, so that's next year, we'll be we're looking at that renewable diesel. We'll also be looking at the various versions of renewable power that are available to us and switching from um, fossil fuel power to renewable power. And and then at the, the five-year, by the five-year piece, I hope that that collaboration that we've started around embodied carbon really has got some traction because um, it, it's that, that long-term game of of really working on those scope three emissions that we need we need to begin now and to uh, keep going but you know we've set a 20-year time frame for that because we know how hard it's going to be so I don't expect in five years for us to have solved it but I'm, I'm hoping that we will have some trials and pilots you know underway at that point. Circling back now to the theme of gender equity Another theme that emerged from my research so far is a certain confluence in um, thinking between the ethical positioning of both gender equity and sustainability. So, and it does seem logical that, um, you know, in an ethically driven sector such as sustainability, it should demonstrate diversity and equitable practices as well. I wonder if you could reflect on this relationship between sustainability and diversity. Well, I think diversity is fundamental to achieving sustainability. It's always uh, included in an expectation in any form of indice around sustainability. There's always a, an expectation that you'll be talking about, you know, diversity uh, of thought. And and I I agree with you that that moral stance around what's the right thing to do uh, underlies. Uh, diversity um, and sustainability, but but really importantly, the problems that we're facing around sustainability are really really hard, and we need um, to innovate. And everything tells us, any form of research around this tells us that innovation comes when you have diverse people with diverse thinking coming together. And so I think, you know, that whole diversity of thought, which may or may not come with gender or, or um, disability or other other more obvious forms of, of diversity, but that diversity of thought is so critical to this. And so it, it makes complete sense to me that we are trying to bring the best of of everybody into into the tent here to to um, work through these problems. So, um, you know, we we have uh, always reported about our diversity statistics and all that sort of stuff as part of our sustainability. Um, but it's it's deeper than that. I think it's the drivers are similar, and uh, and uh, however, the one thing that's a little bit different is I think actually diversity might be one of the keys to unlock the sustainability. Yeah, and that is actually at the heart of why I'm undertaking this research is that to kind of ensure diversity um, because diversity is so important to then achieve the best outcomes and, and we should all be looking at ways that we can um, yeah, improve the outcomes in terms of environmental sustainability because it's so critical. 
I, I mean, when I think about the, the team that has been working on our um, our whole journey to our towards our targets, we're very diverse thinkers. We we come from diverse genders. We have very diverse sexual orientations. We have, uh, but but we have very different ways of working as well. And and we have recognised that that's partially what's helped us uh, work together well as a team. But it's harder. It's a lot harder. Uh, so there will be times where we have quite radically different views about how things should be done, and it's wrestling in that that we usually come up with a you know with a better solution. So I think we've my my global team that I because I, I I wear two hats. I wear a, a building Australia lend lease hat and a, a global lend lease hat for my engagement role. And my engagement team is is very diverse. Actually, both of my teams are very diverse. We we have got the in the sustainability functions the probably the most diverse teams uh, across the organisation. Actually, it'd be interesting to run some stats on that. I'm I'm just anecdotally thinking about the other teams, and I I wouldn't be surprised if we were. Um, if you looked at you know traditional ways of measuring diversity, we'd probably be be a pin up star. Unintentionally, you know, like we haven't set out to, to, to do that, but yeah. But I think it's interesting how um, it falls into place because um, there is that confluence um, that it, it should kind of naturally be that way. Nearing the end of our discussion now, do you have any advice to those who are striving to make a difference in the field of environmental leadership? Do it. <laughs> Just do it. Don't wait for permission. Uh, educate yourself. Don't be put off. Uh, if somebody who is more senior than you or a colleague of yours is saying it's not important, they're wrong, um, and that's okay. They're learning too. They're on that journey. So um, know that that your passion and interest is really important and critical and don't ever lose it. Uh, and... Um, suggest things, put up your hand, find a way. You know, we've had some people in my team who have come from um, backgrounds that have really got very little to do with sustainability, but in their, in their role and in their job, they have, they have made their decisions based on the sustainable thinking, sustainable principles. And really, you don't need to leave your job. Um, we actually need people who are already lawyers, architects, project managers, construction managers to, to stay there and to just be using sustainability and sustainable principles as uh, one of their core um, decision-making tools. Uh, and don't be worried that you don't know it all. Um, we're very, very risk-averse in this sector. We're taught to uh, manage risk. That's often what we're paid for. And that can make it very scary to delve into the world of sustainability of things that haven't necessarily been tried or tested. Um, so find a way to experiment safely, uh, run trials, etc., and and notice if you're having a resistance to, I can't do that because I'm not 100% sure. Um, and you know, we'll get 100% sure. <laughs> keep, keep going and keep trying. Um, and uh, yes, and then try and bring along a friend because <laughs> we need we need more. <laughs> Great advice. <laughs> I'd 
like to end on a question about inspiration. If you could name one thing that has been instrumental in shaping the kind of sustainability leader you are today, it could be a book, a place, a person, an idea or an experience, and we've already discussed a few of them today, what would that one thing be? Uh, as, a sustainable, as a sustainability leader, I think something that was instrumental was growing up next to the bush. Uh, so I spent my childhood watching tadpoles turn into frogs in streams and trying to catch crabs in mangroves and avoiding somehow being eaten by sharks floating down a river on a lilo with my brothers. Um, so I, I think that my immersion in nature was um, instrumental. Uh, you, you know, I would hand feed wild kookaburras, blah, blah, blah. So all of that, I think... Built a love for for the natural world, uh, so that was very much instrumental. Um, I, that leadership program that I mentioned that I was a participant in that, that was extremely instrumental. So being exposed to, you know, Tim Costello showing showing me that there was social inequity in our in our country, um, and uh, similarly, you know, with with um, Peter Garrett around environmental issues, etc. That was very eye-opening. And then I've had a number of really, really good coaches along the way who, just in terms of my leadership um, development, uh, habits, practices, etc. So I mentioned one of them before, Dr. Mark Strom, um, brother Graham Neist, a lady called Tanya Diesel, another called Paula Drayton. These have all been coaches who and mentors who I've worked with. Uh, right through from my 20s uh, to now and I learn I still learn enormously from them and so I really encourage people to, to get a, you know to have somebody to coach them about how to um, how to do your job not 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 in terms of the um, content <laughs> but in terms of the application in terms of the interaction with other human beings in terms of understanding your own fears and you know neurotic habits and, <laughs> and addressing them um, it's really important and it's made a big difference for me and thank you for being so generous with your time today that has been such an interesting conversation and i've actually learned a lot so thank you so much Design Conscious is a podcast created by me, Sarah Lawler, as part of the 2020 International Women's Day Scholarship supported by NAWIC.